Today's passage will be taken from Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like to read the first 10 verses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Before I dive into this passage, I want to take a step back and look at a big picture of the first couple chapters of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, we notice that the first half of chapter 1 was talking about all those blessings that God blessed the members of this church at Ephesus. He blessed them, he did it, he chose them, he predestinated them, he adopted them, he forgave their sins, he made them acceptable, he redeemed them. He um, made known the mystery of his will, and he also gave them an inheritance. Tremendous amount of blessings. And on the heels of that, the second half of chapter 1, Paul prayed for the members of this church. His uh, prayer was very specific. He prays for wisdom, for revelation, for enlightenment, for knowledge, and to know those rich things of God. And that was very narrow in that what was that knowledge and understanding and wisdom about? It was about Jesus Christ and his uh, sovereignty. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's far above principalities, power, might, and dominion. Uh, all things are put under his foot, and he is the head of the church. So, Paul prayed for this church, even though in verse 9 it says they were made known the mystery of his will to him, he still prayed for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding for this particular group to understand who Jesus was even better. As we move on to chapter 2, chapter 2 establishes two hurdles those saints at Ephesus had to overcome to be included in that family of God, to be part of that church body. The first one was an Adam curse. I call it a genetic hurdle, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. And the other thing was it was a race curse. It was a race hurdle that had to be overcome. That's described in the second half of Ephesians 2. Then when we get to Ephesians chapter 3, the first half of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is giving his job description as a preacher to the Gentiles. And chapter 3 closes with a second prayer for this group, which is subtly different than that first prayer recorded at the end of chapter 1. So with that being said, given a backdrop, we have an understanding this passage we're going to look at today is the beginning of chapter 2, the first half, 
where we are going to try to overcome uh, this, uh, this, uh, this genetic curse to become part of the family of God. But before I do, I'd like to take a moment and real quickly go to Revelations chapter 2. This is a very unique book in that we have the first prayer, what Paul prayed for. We have the second prayer he prayed for. But then we also have a sneak synopsis of what happened to this church a whole generation later. It's recorded in Revelations chapter 2, 1 through 7. I'm only going to read the last couple verses in there, 4 and 5. He says to this church, he says, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the candlestick out of his place except thou repent. He says the comment, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. In my mind, that is exactly what chapter 2 is about. There's two places from where that this particular group of Gentiles came from. They had to overcome the genetic curse of Adam, and they needed to come over their racial curse in the Old Testament, and that'll be described later. So, as we go through this, let's, uh, let's, let's move forward and, and let's go to this passage of Scripture right now. In um, the very end of chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, this is the part of the, the, the end of the prayer. G, uh, Paul writes this thing right here. He says, Jesus Christ is, this is reading in verse uh, 21, Jesus Christ is far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Notice it says in verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. We're writing to the church at Ephesus, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So as we wrap up chapter 1, these saints at Ephesus were be made part of Jesus Christ's body when they became members of that local church. And in order to do that, a couple miracles had to happen. The first was they had to overcome a curse. Now, you're probably familiar when we're talking about Adam's curse. We look at Adam nine time, 99% of the time as our federal head. As he operated, we inherited from him based on his actions, just as Jesus Christ operated and we inherited something from him. That's what Romans 5 is all about. But I want to take that and twist it a little bit, uh, just a little bit from a different angle. And not only did we inherit from Adam uh, uh, this federal curse, but we also literally inherited a genetic curse also. And it's from that standpoint I want to read chapter 2 to you. No. As I looked at this passage of Scripture in Ephesians 2, I want to break these 10 verses into three sections this morning. Verses 1 through 3 I'm going to label as death. This is our state before God gets a hold of us. The next three verses, 4 through 6, I want to label that section of this passage as life. And then the final section, verses 7 through 10, I want to label that is our walk. So we want to look at the death, we want to look at being made alive, and then I want to look at the walk once we've been made alive. So with that being said, let's go to the first three verses, and uh, let's, let's talk about that for a second. 
Now, let me, let me take a step back and also set the stage. I want to take a little bit of a big picture thing. When God created angels and man, he created both of them with a free will. Both of them <clears throat> were allowed to make a choice. The angels and man differ from one aspect. Man can procreate, angels cannot. However many saints God made, that I'm sorry, however many angels God made, that's how many angels there are today. And it turns out as about one-third of them decided that they no longer wanted to serve God, but they wanted to be as gods themselves. Well, Adam had the same choice also. He was made perfect, and he decided he wanted to become a god also. And at that point, he became cursed. So the difference is, is when Adam cursed, he was cursed body, soul, and spirit. His body was cursed in that he began to die a physical death. His genes, his DNA, everything in his entire body was affected. From that day forward, it started getting old. He started getting wrinkles. He started getting ray hair. His muscles started wearing. His eyesight started dimming. His ears became dull over time. This is just the wear and tear on a body. Before that curse, nothing happened. Afterwards, he became cursed in his physical body. But not only was he cursed, so was every one of his offspring. They were cursed in the same way. He was also affected soul and spirit. That day his spirit did die. It became corrupt. It was perfect before. After the fall, it was corrupt. His soul, his aspirations, his affections, his inclinations, everything he had there, that also became corrupt and that died also. So Adam was uh, uh, corrupted. He was uh, cursed body, soul, and spirit. And not only was he cursed body, soul, and spirit, so was all his offspring, and we got the genetics because of that. I find it interesting, in the day we live, I'm talking to you about genetics in our current culture. Our com a lot of folks don't even have enough common sense to say that there's a difference between an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. And this morning I'm trying to tell you that before the fall, we had a perfect GNA, a DNA pool, and after the fall it became affected. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at. So as I read this passage one more time, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, let's look at this. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is more than just a legal aspect. Read verses 2 and 3. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. A few weeks ago we talked about that word conversation in Scripture. Conversation in this sense is not talking about a dialogue I would have another person. This is talking about my manner of life. From among whom also we had our manner of life in times past in the lust of our flesh. Every decision we made, every thought we had was to, for the sake of desiring, uh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and the desires of our mind. And by nature we were the children of wrath. That was the description of us. So what 
Paul is doing is he's writing this Ephesians that we saw in, in Revelations chapter 2 that when it came to doctrine, they were spot on. When it came to spotting false practice, they were spot on. But they left their first love, and he wrote this, from whence thou art fallen. So it's almost as if, I think probably the case, that Paul was being inspired here to spend a whole chapter to tell these Ephesians, don't get too full of yourself, look where you started. And not only look where you started, look what it take to overcome these two hurdles. And to overcome these two hurdles, it was all of God. You can't take any credit for this. So as we go forward, there's a couple of verses I would like to read to you. The first one I want to read is in John 11 and verse 39. John 11 and 39. <clears throat> this is a verse talking about Lazarus, when Lazarus had died and he was in the tomb and Jesus came. Now Jesus purposely came and he arrived four days after Lazarus had died. I don't want to say he arrived four days late. He arrived right on time because he was there to teach a lesson. But when he arrived at the sister's house, Mary and Martha... They both said to him, if you would have came, you could have healed him. And on his way to the tomb, he said, where did you lay him? Roll away the stone. And the people said in John 11 and 39, he said, he stinketh, for he had been dead four days. My friends, the only action a corpse can do is decomposition. A corpse cannot hear, it cannot see, it cannot believe, it cannot understand. It cannot be converted, it cannot change. It cannot please God, it cannot come to God. Corpses don't do. The only thing a corpse can do is decompose unless God intervenes. And that's exactly what happened in the case of Lazarus. Let's read a couple verses here in John 3 and verse 2. Notice the word except. I want to show you that corpses don't do except God steps in and starts getting involved. <clears throat> John 3 and 2. The same came to Jesus by night <coughs> and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, this man was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was looking at Jesus' ministry. He recognized the fact that these miracles Jesus were doing, man cannot do. The only way these miracles can be done is if God is involved. This is a practical illustration. Let's go to the next reference in John 5 and 21. John 5, 21 says, Is for the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. This is not an invitation. It is not something that's being offered. This is something that's being driven by God. John 6 and 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. This drawing that the Father is going to do is not a wooing. This drawing is like I would draw a sword from a sheath or I would draw water from a well. 
The sword in the water is passive. This is a drawing, and this is exactly how it happens with saints. No man can come to God except God draw him. And my final reference to prove this point is in John 6 and 65. And he said, There I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him by my Father. Notice these accepts here. Again, man in his natural state does not perform these things. When we go to Scripture and we see some of these descriptions, John, uh, I'm sorry, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, uh, Scripture says there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God, there are none that doeth good. In our dead corpse state, in our spiritually dead state, we cannot do. It takes an act of God to make us in that state. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. He cannot discern those things. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, this is very much like when Jesus raised the dead. Regeneration is just like Jesus raising the dead. The dead are very passive. It reminds me of another case when Jesus raised the dead. This is recorded in Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, <clears throat> Jesus was preaching town to town from his disciples. And in those days when he went unto this one little town, towns back then were kind of like castles where they had great big walls around the perimeter and that was their protection against being raided. And the way people entered the city and uh, exited the city was through the gates. And in the Old Testament, people were not buried within the city, they were buried outside the city. So Jesus showed up at this one town, and as he was walking, he pulled aside, and a funeral possession was coming through the gate, going to the cemetery to bury a young man. Jesus looked at this funeral procession, and he saw this little widow woman following the coffin, and he had great compassion on her. He did not have compassion on the corpse. That man was with the Lord. He had compassion on the widow woman that was left without a husband or a son. He had compassion on her, and he walked up, and he touched the coffin. And when he touched, touched the coffin, that corpse that was doing nothing but decomposing revived and came alive. That's exactly what happens. That's the state we are in, spiritually speaking, when, when Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is describing us. Okay, with that being said, let's move on to the next section of our passage. We've been in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We looked at the first three verses. That describes our dead state. Let's look at the next three verses, 4 through 6, and this is describe how we become alive. These are <clears throat> two of my most favorite words in the entirety of Scripture. 4 starts off with the words, but God. Dead doesn't do, but God. This is where the action is going to happen. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice this description here gives all the credit to God. It does it through his rich mercy. It does it through his great love. And he quickened us together with Christ. He made us alive. <clears throat> Let's look at a couple phrases 
the way but God is used in Scripture. The first one I would like to go to is in Acts 13. Let me read Acts 13, 29, and 30. This is one of the apostles given testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 29, And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, talking of Jesus Christ, they took him down from the tree, that's the cross, and they laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus was a corpse. He was laid in the tomb. God intervened and took him up from that tomb and brought him out of that. Let's read a second witness in Philippians 2.27 using the phrase, but God. This is talking about a preacher. I believe his name was Epaphras. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul is talking about a man that was very sick, and he was heading to death, and it wasn't a miracle drug, it wasn't an operation, it wasn't a procedure, it was but God. But God is a very powerful word, a very powerful phrase for us. Did you know but God is the phrase we use when we're looking at cancer? But God is the phrase when we look at a rebellious teenager? But God can take care of a marriage that's in trouble? But God can take care of depression? But God is what helps you breathe your every breath? But God is what gets you up the next morning? But God is the one that gives you spiritual life. We are spiritually dead, and we trust on those two words. With that being said, let's read the Ephesians 2 passage again. Let's read 3 through 5. Among whom also we all had our conversations in times past, in the lust of our flesh, (coughs) fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Before God got a hold of us, the only thing we cared about was ourself. We fulfilled our own flesh, we filled our own mind, and that's the only thing that drove us. But God intervened in that selfish, dirty, dead individual who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. We give all the credit to God for making that change. That's where the life came from. I find it interesting in this passage in 4 and in verse 7. Again, it's hard for me to read these passages and take any credit for myself. His rich mercy, his great love, his exceeding grace, his kindness towards us. Who did God exercise? Did he exercise on a corpse? Or did he exercise on a newborn? Did he exercise on adolescence? And the answer was, he exercised on a dead person. Here's a song we sing, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. You know, we could actually substitute the word corpse for a wretch. That saved a corpse like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 Grace taught my heart to fear. Did grace teach a stony heart? Or did grace teach a transplanted heart? 
or did grace initiate a transplant? My friends, he gave us the heart that could bleed, that could feel, that could understand spiritual things. Okay, let's move on to the third passage in our, our scripture. We've been in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Verse 1 through 3 is talking about our dead state. Verses 4 through 6 is talking about how we become alive. The last four verses are talking about how we ought to walk. Let me read that passage one more time, starting at verse 7. <clears throat> that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which hath God hath before ordained that we should walk in. I want to talk about a few words in this passage, and the first word I want to look at is the word work. The Oxford English Dictionary defines it as something that is or was done, something to be done. It's something that's there. Titus 3, 3 through 5 says, Our salvation comes not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Romans 4, 4 says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If it was something we did, it wouldn't be grace, it would be something that was owed to us. And it's said again in Romans 11 and verse 6, If by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That's not a bunch of double talk. It's saying that it's either one or the other or can't be both. If it's by grace, there's no works involved. If it's by work, there's no grace involved. It's one or the other. And this passage of Scripture says it's not by works, it's by grace. I want to look at this word faith. I want to look at this word faith. <clears throat> faith shows up in Scripture in a couple different ways, but I do want to show you that faith is a command. Now, a lot of times we think of faith as something that's not a commandment. Let me just give you a couple verses to try to get you thinking that direction and then follow through on my reasoning. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus was fussing at the Pharisees. And he says, <clears throat> you're doing these technicalities in the law. You have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. Faith is a commandment. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, he says, remember without ceasing your work of faith. And then finally, John 6, 28 and 29, the disciples were talking to Jesus Christ and they said, what shall we do that we might do the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe on him who sent me. So, so, so here is a couple of verses here that imply that faith is a work. Now, stay with me. A lot of times we think commandments or thou shall not kill, or, or thou shall not steal, or thou shall not bear false witness, or thou shall not covet. Those are commandments. Well, there's other commandments in Scripture too. <clears throat> in Philippians 4, 4, I believe, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. Did you know that rejoicing is a commandment? Usually our response off our lips are, But I don't feel like rejoicing. Would that excuse fly with, I don't feel like not stealing. I don't feel like not bearing false witness. I don't feel like not coveting. 
No, we would never let anyone get away with that. But for some reason with rejoicing, we let people get away with that. It's a command. We are ought to do this. And it is a commandment to believe the things of God. Well, I don't feel like believing it. Or I don't understand it. The Lord says we are commanded to believe. Faith is a commandment. So with that being said, let's read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Maybe this will make a little more sense. It says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If salvation, I had anything to do with salvation, even if it was a fraction of 1%, God knew I would go around puffed up taking credit for my salvation. And he's saying, it is not by works. It's not by anything you do. This is not the case. (coughs) It is not of works. When I look at this, I want to also take a second and look at the word gift. A lot of times we use this gift to kind of slide through this, but I want to try to tie that Loose and down really tight. A gift is the act of given or the thing given. That's what the OED says. Let me look at something here in Ephesians 3, 7. This is just one chapter after our text. Notice what it says here in chapter 3 and verse 7. This is talking about the Apostle Paul. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given me. Was the ministry something Paul could accept or reject? And the answer was he could not reject it. You know, Jonah tried rejecting his call to the ministry, and that didn't work out too well. This was not an option. This word gift in this case, talking about the ministry, is something that was bestowed upon Paul. Notice how he describes it in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, I labored more abundantly, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. My ministry was a gift, and it took work to do that gift. I couldn't reject it. Colossians 1.25, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God given me. This is a gift given from God, but it was not one that could be rejected. Let's go to another reference. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7.7. Paul was talking about marriage and remarriage, and he made this statement. Now, personally, I do believe Paul was single at this time, but in reading the text and some other materials, I've kind of got the conclusion that Paul was a widow, widower. But regardless of whether he was a widower or he was never married, this is what he says. I would that all were as I myself... But every man hath this proper gift of God. He's talking about the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness, someone that does not have the need for a wife, that is a gift. Is that something you can reject? If you don't have that need, you can't reject it. You don't have the inclination towards it. So that is another example of a gift that is not optional. Let's go back to our reference here. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's not of God? What's not the gift? I'm sorry, what's not of the us, and which is not of the gift? Okay, let's look at this for a second. What's the gift? 
Is the gift the grace? By grace are you saved through faith. Is the gift the grace? Is the gift the salvation? Or is the gift the faith? And you know, I don't really care how you answer it. All three of those, the gift, the salvation, and the faith, come directly from God. Now, let me make this statement about faith. At regeneration, and we can look at this in Galatians 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. When God regenerates a soul, He plants all those fruits of the Spirit in a very minute form. And it is us, up to us, to exercise those forms, to grow those forms, those, those nine or le- ten, eleven things that are listed there, to, to mature those things. And faith is one of those things. So at regeneration, we are implanted with a certain amount of faith. And that is in every born-again child of God, regardless of they, whether they heard the gospel. It's there. And through that, they are able to see the miracles of creation and understand that the miracles like Nicodemus did. And when I look at this particular passage, it is a gift from God. That's the faith that I believe is being talked about here. So let's close with our passage one more time. And as we read this section of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I want you to focus on the first couple words. I want you to focus on the word dead. I want you to focus on the phrase, but God. I want you to focus on the phrase, not of works. And I want to focus on the phrase, gift of God. I find it very hard to put myself into this passage and take credit for any part of my eternal salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. Notice what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. After Jesus has performed this miracle on us, after Jesus Christ has performed this miracle on the saints at Ephesus, who he's writing, it is up to them to walk in the manner of God. And that is a choice that they do make. It is not tied to their eternal salvation. It is because of their eternal salvation. It is not to get their eternal salvation. It is to say thank you for the eternal salvation God has already given him. Remember, he's writing to some Ephesians, and he's praying for wisdom and knowledge at the end of chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he's bringing them back to the point, like I believe it says in, in Revelations 2, from whence thou art fallen. Remember from whence thou art fallen. You can't take credit. You cannot be this self-righteous hypocrite sitting in this church looking down your nose at other people outside the church because the only reason that you are here is because of the rich grace, the fullness of God that he had on you. You can't take credit for this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verses 1 through 3 describe a corpse. Someone unable to do anything good. 
But God, stop. We're going in a completely different direction. Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's telling these saints, in a legalistic sense, they are sitting with Jesus Christ in heaven, right as they were reading this epistle. Verse 7, this is the walk. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. We are waiting for him to return. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of you should boast. We can't boast in anything. For we are his workmanship. It wasn't a joint collaboration. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We were created in Christ Jesus by God, not ourselves. But we were created by God unto good works. There's a book full of commandments that we are to following to please Him, to glorify Him, to testify of Him. Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, as we read this passage, this is the first of two hurdles the Ephesians had to overcome to become part of the body of Christ. The second one is a racial hurdle, and we will read this in the second half of chapter 2 the next time we meet. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.